I wanted to talk with you about our heavenly rest, our heavenly rest. And um, of course, for reasons that don't need to be explained, I, uh, my heart's so filled with this, uh, even though I attempted my absolute best to continue Dave's uh, s- sermon on, on marriage. <clears throat> this is what, what I was prepared for. And I attempted some other ones, but eventually last night I went right back to what I know I'll have to deal with. But I think it's not just for me. I think it's for absolutely every person here. I know it is. Our heavenly rest. You see, Sabbath is the weekly sign of God's promise. Sabbath is the weekly sign of God's promise, reminding us that He has promised us that we will enter into our future rest. And every single time... Every single Sunday we gather around here to to meet, we see that sign and we are reminded of the promise of that rest, which each and every one of us will enter in our future. John chapter 14, verse 1 through 6 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not, can everybody please say do not? Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would tell you, because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again and will take you to myself. So that where I am, there you also will be. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said, doubting Thomas, he said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, You can't ask Siri to take you there. You cannot figure your way out there. There is no road for you to travel. There's one door to go through in order to get there. I am that way you asked me about, Thomas. So when Jesus begins teaching at the Last Supper, which is where they're at, he starts with a commandment. By declaring, do not. Now you could read it just as a suggestion, but really it wasn't a suggestion. It's an absolute command. Don't. Stop. Do not. What? Let your hearts be troubled. Here we are commanded by Jesus not to be anxious. Not to be fearful. Not to be troubled. You may not be anxious. You may not be fearful. You may not be troubled regarding the afterlife or regarding our future in heaven. But not just the afterlife. Do not be anxious even about the way on how you will get there. Because I am that way, Jesus said. It is His responsibility. He is the way, your way as a believer. Then he says, speaking of the place he's preparing, he says, if that were not so, in other words, if there was no place for you in my father's mansions, and if I'm not going to prepare a place for you, I would tell you, Jesus is assuring them, his disciples and you and I, that he would not let us continue in this false hope if it wasn't in fact true. Therefore, what we can see here is that the first thing we need to realize about the afterlife is that we ought not and we should not and we may not be anxious. 
It's not a dreadful thing. Only in your fleshly mind is that a dreadful thing. But in actual fact and in actual reality, the truth of the matter is, it is nothing to be fearful or anxious over. The second thing he's telling us there is that heaven is a certainty. Heaven is a reality, but that reality is certain. If it were not so, he says, I would have told you. So the past year, of course, here at Christ's Nation, has proven to be a year of testing for our small congregation, as it is. And uh, we have seen more sudden and unexpected deaths than ever in the history of our, short history of our church. Uh, so last year, this time, a little, a little earlier, uh, Mr. Spada, my father-in-law, wonderful man, passed away. And then, of course, right after that, Bruce Scoville passed away. After him, uh, my half-sister Amanda passed away. And then Brother Glenn Walzak passed away unexpectedly and shockingly so. And about three weeks ago, my dad, uh, Donnie Jacobs, passed away in an accident on a farm in South Africa. And that's where I was. But by the way, I do, I do need to mention that uh, none of these died from COVID. Now, for our family, personal family, of course, there uh, also were more deaths along the way, quite, quite a few. Uh, three being pastor friends of mine, um, Nick Van Rensburg from Hawaii and Okr Pothiter from the Ukraine, whom we used to support as a church when they planted their church. We used to um, give to them monthly and um, during points of passion. And then Lawrence Fenter, another pastor friend of mine. So this past year, I uh, you know have experienced uh, many people around me pass away, and so have you. And so that's a lot of deaths for one year. Uh, it has been heavy on my heart that we gain a sober perspective about life, especially in the light of death. How can we look at this thing clear-headed, be cl being clear-headed, clear-minded, and not pretend like it's not there? You see, we ought never to be that teenager who lives in such a way that he, he thinks he's going to live forever. Because the truth is, none of us will escape our own funerals. We'll all be there. And it will always be sooner than we expect. So what are we believers to make of death? What are we to make of this? And I want to today offer you a few thoughts. The first is, deal with the reality of death sooner in life, not later. Deal with the reality of death sooner in life, not later in life. You see, many struggle wrapping their mind around death since they avoid the thought of death throughout their lives. They ever want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to consider it. They don't want to think it through. And they live as if it's not going to happen ever. I'm reminded of when Tina and I and the kids were up north in Eagle River on vacation. And um, when we were at this breakfast place, <clears throat> we were walking out and there was this couple, uh, they were retired and they were in their 80s and they asked us where we were from and we told them and they said, oh no, we, and we asked them, what are they doing here? They said, no, we've retired here and we, we uh, just came to get away from the city because they too were from Chicago. And the lady said, um, she brought up the fact that they were on their way to a funeral and she said, but we don't, 
we, we don't say the word. We just call it, we just say that D word, but we don't call the word. And then I'm like, oh, you mean, you mean death, death? She goes, yes, that word. We don't use, we don't say that word. And then she says, that's something we don't talk about. And she's in her 80s. But I'm reminded in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2 and 3, it says, It is better to spend your time at funerals than at festivals. It is better to spend your time at funerals than at festivals. For you are going to die. And it is a good thing that you think about it while there is still time. Sorrow is better than laughter. For sadness has a refining influence on us. Powerful. Sorrow is better than laughter. It doesn't say laughter is not good because elsewhere in scriptures it does say laughter is like medicine to the bones. But laughter is good. Sorrow is better, it says, in this regard. Why? Because laughter doesn't refine your life. It is times of sorrow that refines your thinking, your life, your goals, your perspective. So why is it better to spend time at funerals than parties? Because it sobers us up to the fact that you and I also have a future funeral scheduled in our life. And it would be foolish to not consider that. To ignore the fact that we all eventually pass away. Just to ignore that and never talk about it. Never talk about the D word. Never talk about that event. Is to eliminate the great equalizer in life. The rich, the poor, the great, the small. All eventually pass through that gate to stand before the Lord of the universe. To ignore the fact that every one of us will eventually pass away is to silence the voice that humbles each and every one of us. The voice called the great equalizer. We start thinking of ourselves in different terms than we ought to when we do not consider that life is brief. It's like a passing shadow. It's like a vapor, the Bible says. Here today, gone tomorrow. And if we don't think about that, we view ourselves in some kind of intoxicated perspective. And we don't see ourselves as sober. Why is sorrow better than laughter in this case? Because character and wisdom is forged and developed in the crucible of life's trials, not during the wonderful times in life, but during the hard times in life, during times of loss. It actually says in that verse, for sadness has a refining influence. It has this refining influence on us. The, uh, the, the somber and at times fearful thought of our own future passing has a major impact on how we choose to arrange our current moments and our current relationships that we have around us. Suddenly, we no longer trivialize. Suddenly, we don't make mountains out of molehills. Suddenly, we have a desperate need to forgive and walk in forgiveness. Suddenly, there's a commitment that wouldn't have been there had we not realized just how fragile this thing, life, this thing called life is. In Psalms 90 verse 12, it says, Teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. Teach us to number our days. In other words, it's something to be taught. As parents, we need to teach our kids, your days are numbered, son. Your days are numbered. We view them as youngsters, but don't you 
also feel like when you look back to your graduation day, wasn't it like yesterday? So will be theirs. They too need to be taught to number their days. And it's God who helps us understand our days are numbered. It says, teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. Help us to spend them as we should. Being educated on the brevity of life is what enables you to spend them as you should. To have no knowledge of the brevity of life will give you the temptation to spend your days in ways you should not. It's said about teenage boys, psychologists say that they have an inability to calculate consequence. That's why they jump off of places. You go like, what was he thinking? Well, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> because they lack that ability to really calculate consequence. And we're asking God, or the psalmist asks God, help me, God, so that I may calculate how brief my life is, because only when I realize that am I able to spend them in a way that I should. Because mark my words, without that education, you will spend them in ways that you should not. So the conclusion here is, that it does not help to live without thought of death. If we live without a thought of death, we would end up in foolishness, wasting away, wasting away the days that we actually do have. Number two. Allow the day you are scheduled to see Jesus, allow that big day to influence every day before it. In other words, live every day that you have here on earth with that great day in mind. You're like, Jacques, you're so morbid. <laughs> Actually, it's not. In other words, live every day here on earth with that great day in mind. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. In other words, not, you don't yet look like you're going to look when you see him. We know that when he appears, Jesus, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. I just want to pause there for a second. The clearer God becomes to you, the more transformed you become. In other words, the more of God you see, the more like Him you become, and the less like you you become. Right? So He's saying, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as of yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. Verse 3, And everyone who has this hope set on Jesus purifies himself. Everyone who has this hope set on seeing Jesus purifies himself just as Christ is pure. 
The MacArthur Study Bible says about this portion of Scripture, quote, living in the reality of Christ's return makes a difference in a Christian's or a Christian's behavior. The point is, when we see Him, we will be just like, just as He is. Whether we see Him because He comes on clouds or whether we see Him because we pass through death to where He is at. But when we see Him, we will be changed. And when we, this is what Paul is saying here, excuse me, this is what John is saying, when we actually have hope in that, when we are excited about seeing Him, it purifies us. Suddenly, when we have this hope, we will stop living towards, let's say, retirement, but we'll start living toward eternity instead. So our conclusion here, number two, is that allow your eternal life to drive your temporal life. Allow your eternal life or your, te- your eternal life to drive this temporal life. Allow your eternal mindset to drive your daily tasks, your daily decisions, your daily attitude. If you knew you were going to be standing before the Lord tomorrow, what would your prayer life be like today? You ever wondered? <laughs> if you knew you were going to be standing before the Lord tomorrow, what would be your priorities today? Oh, here's a question. If you knew you were going to be standing before the Lord tomorrow, how would you be treating the person next to you today? You see, treat everybody today as if they will, as if they will be in eternity tomorrow. Treat everybody today as if they will be in eternity tomorrow. So first we saw, number one, we have to deal with the reality of death sooner in life, not later. Don't put it off. It's better to attend a funeral than a party, the Bible says. Number two, allow the day you are scheduled to see Jesus to influence every day before that. Number three, and this is about us personally, never live to be remembered. Rather live to be a seed. A seed that falls to the ground and dies to self. You see, Jesus actually said this about himself in John 12, verse 24. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life, watch this, folks. Those who love their lives in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Those who love their lives in this world, they'll lose it. They'll lose it to death. Death will take everything away. But those who do not, those who care nothing for their life in this world, they, all they care about is God's purposes. They will keep their life eternally. You see, if you are like me, and uh, you tend towards being sentimental, how many of you, are somewhat sentimental in certain ways, yeah? Okay, if, you t- if you're like me and you tend to be sentimental, and I know that I am because when I was visiting my hometown, you know, I'm running around my old school, school grounds, and I'm like, this is the window, this is the window I broke when, when I threw the cricket ball through this window, and, and um, here's where I stood, and uh, I was standing with my dad, and we were, we were shouting for our rugby team, and, you know, 
all those wonderful memories. And do you know that the Bible says, do not say the good old days. Do you know that? Do not say the good old days. Today's good. Today's good. Why? If God had to kill me right now, do you know that he would not be unjust? If God had to kill me right now, he would not be wrong. He would be just. Because the payment for sin is what? Yeah. Yet here I am. Another day. Mercy. Can you all say mercy? We have to learn to be grateful for this day. Re rejoice in this day. Because this is the day that the Lord is giving you. A day you do not deserve. My heart's beating because God is merciful to me. And so is He to you. Thank you, Lord. Every day you wake up, His mercies are new. Every morning. If they weren't, you wouldn't wake up. This is a privilege to have another day of business in the kingdom of God, working in the kingdom of God, being fruitful and productive in the kingdom of God. This is, a, this is how He has blessed us. So if you are like me and you tend towards sentimentality, then this verse is specifically for you. Because to be sentiment, sentimental is, is not a sin, just so you know, but definitely makes room to be tempted by sin, by the sin of loving things that are not eternal. Things that are not eternal. That's why it says, those who care nothing for their life, that person who cares nothing for their life is very evidently not a very sentimental person, right? He's not attached to stuff and things and events and past memories and... There's no sentimentality there. His goal is much greater. He's been loosened from all these things in this world. And he's completely connected to eternity. High school students on their graduation day are, are oftentimes addressed in lofty terms about how they need to go out and how they need to leave their mark in this world. I remember the very last graduation I attended. It was not far from here. And that's where this hit me. And this, this was years ago. Um, I attended one of Jim, uh, uh, Jim Winter's son's graduations. And um, every single person, teacher that got up there, basically said this. This is your moment. This is your time. You go out here today and you change this world. You leave your mark on this world. This is your hour. I mean, everybody is saying that. Every single one after the other, after the other. After a while, I'm like, all right, anybody have a different script? They're all sharing the same notes. <laughs> Get out there. Leave your mark on this world. And this is now the mandate given to young people. Watch this. Young people, go out and make your mark. In other words, they start living by that mandate. I'm going to go out here and I'm going to make my mark. 
They live by it. They measure their lives by it. If one day their name is in lights on the news, they did something great for the, for, for the world or the community, they're successful according to that mandate. If their life happens to be average or below average, or maybe they, they simply a stay-at-home mom caring for those kids the husband gave them, then according to their graduation mandate, their lives might seem unsuccessful. Now this family, this graduation mandate is a lie from the pit of hell. Instead of living to leave your mark on this world, rather discover the purpose of glorifying God in all that you do, especially in the mundane, especially in what you think is trivial, because that might just be what is huge to God. God stands behind that mom, raising up a future generation. And that mom's going like, I wish I could do something great with my life. I'll never forget when, when Rick Warren came out with that book, you know, uh, what's it called? Purpose in Life. Purpose Driven Life, thank you. I remember uh, walking through a park. And as I was walking through a park, there was a mom sitting on a bench reading Purpose Driven Life with the four kids running around. <laughs> and I was so tempted to go and ask her, like, are you looking for a purpose, ma'am? Because <laughs> I see four of them running around here. <laughs> now, that's just one example. There are many examples I could use. But instead of leaving our mark or trying to leave our mark in this world, rather discover God's purpose, which is to glorify Him in all you do, even in the mundane. Don't live to make a mark in this world. That is not what God called you to do. That adds up to nothing throughout all eternity. Nothing. Death takes that away from you. It strips you from your high achievements. Do not live to be remembered. It's a lie. Rather live in such a way that you will one day die empty. That's, that's what you want. Not to be remembered, but to be empty when you leave. Completely given to God's purposes. Totally spent on those things that are eternal. Entirely vested into God's kingdom. You see, that will cause you to echo the Apostle Paul's words, I have finished my race. Yeah, but, yeah, but I never saw you on the news. I know. <laughs> I finished my race. While others made the news and they got distracted by the things of this world, I, on the other hand, finished my race. Just like the Apostle Paul said, he did. You see, we want those who are dying to know we will remember them forever, don't we? As he lays on his deathbed, I want him to know, like, you'll be remembered forever. Everybody remembers you, and you are loved. That's what we do. We want them to know that. Is that not true? 
We have pictures of our lost loved ones everywhere in our house, as we do today. But I must, and that's not wrong, but I want to tell you, That we want to do that really for our sake. We want them remembered. However, the dead do not care if we remember them or not. It's a hard lesson to learn, but I submit my heart to that. But I've learned in scriptures that the dead only care to be remembered by the Lord, not by us. In Luke chapter 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged, they're hurling at abuses at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other responded and rebuked him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you, have under the, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross next to Christ, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. That's all I need right now. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Our conclusion here is, family, God never called you to make your mark in this world. He called you to give yourself to his purposes for you, small as they may seem to you, it matters, and they matter eternally. Is this helping anybody today? So number one, we learned that it's better for us to deal with the reality of death sooner, not later. And number two, to allow the day you are scheduled to see Jesus to influence every other day before that day. Number three, never live to be remembered. Rather live to be a seed that falls to the ground and dies to self. Number four, remove the fear, of, the fear and dread of death. Remove it from your life. Jesus says, do not, remember, be anxious. Remove the fear, remove the dread of death by living for the glory of God. The next funeral you go to, and it reminds you how your day is coming. <laughs> Every day is another day closer. There's a way for you to remove the fear of dread and the fear and the dread of death, excuse me. It is by living for God's glory. You see, some live to make money. Most people live to make money. That's their goal in life. Others live to find happiness. Then there are those who chase fame all their lives, also known as the starving artists. <laughs> then there are those living to find love and acceptance. Love and acceptance. I remember going to college, studying to be an opera singer, concert pianist. I'm like, I realize I'm going to be a starving artist for the rest of my life. <laughs> Not to change. Then there are those living to, to find love, those living to find acceptance. Then there are those who live to retire. That's what they live for. And they are in search of leisure. They're in search of 
pleasure. It's called hedonism. <clears throat> we run away from pain and we're always striving towards pleasure. Pleasure and pleasure. The great, two greatest motivators in the human life, pain and pleasure. Escaping pain and arriving at pleasure. Many people live for these things. Money, happiness, acceptance, love and so forth. But family, I'm here to tell you. These goals are purposes, and these goals, excuse me, and these purposes will fill you with fear. These are the things that fill people with fear and dread for death. Having the wrong goals. And I'm going to prove to you why. It is because you have the wrong goals and the wrong purposes for this life. Because you have them, you are filled with fear and dread, and here's why. Because as you, as you go ahead and place your aim on these unworthy targets, you will find future death growing bigger and bigger and more prominent every day, crouching like a dragon, ready to erase any and all of your lofty goals in the end. I'm striving for this, but I know that the moment I die, it all goes away. I'm reaching to achieve this, but the moment I die, it's all gone. I've always wanted to be known, but the moment I die, guess what? Yep, people are going to forget. It all goes away. Death takes it all away. That's why people are so in fear of death. Because it doesn't matter what they've achieved. It doesn't count when you get there. It doesn't matter when you get there. Remove the fear and dread of death by living for God's glory, not your own comfort, not your own pleasure, not your own fame, not your own wealth. Not your... Live for God's glory. Now, I'm not saying wealth is a sin. I'm not saying happiness or wanting to be happy is a sin. I'm not saying desiring to be loved is a sin. I'm not saying ex wanting to be accepted is a sin or, or uh, leaving a mark in this world is a sinful thing to do. Many men, especially in the church, left major marks within the world. 1517, the whole world changed that year because of one man who was convicted by scriptures. They are not evil within themselves, of course. They are evil when they become life's goal or when they become your life's purpose. When that is the thing you chase after primarily. Prioritizing these goals is what causes the human psyche to shudder at death. Because we can't do anything about it. We can achieve all we want. We cannot do anything about death. It's the great equalizer. The enemy that comes to erase all these people have lived for and achieved. It just takes it all away. Brings it to nothing. Philippians 1.21 says... For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, right? For to me is, live, is to live and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? <laughs> I just don't know. Look at this. It's an amazing thing. How Paul goes, I just don't know what I want. I don't know whether to go or to stay. To live or to die. Verse 23 says, I am torn between the two. 
I'm between a rock and a hard place. I desire to, to depart and be with Christ, which is better for me. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. That's become so real to me because how many of you would love to end your life or come to a place in your life even today where eternity is so real, appetizing and appealing, so desirable and so certain to you that really there is hope in death. That's what it says. We don't mourn like the world does because we believers. We mourn, but not like the world. How many of you would like to be like that in this life? <laughs> Where you are free from the fear of death, right? Free from the dread of knowing that day is in my future. Hmm. Well, Paul got there. And we need to know, we need to know how Paul got there. Why was he so eager to die? Or why was he as eager, excuse me, to die as what he was to live? Because he reached his goals. That's why. <laughs> his goals were not comfort, leisure, and sightseeing. His goals was not to one day travel the world and pick up shells on every nice beach. That was not his goal. Here's his goal. 2 Timothy, 6, uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 and 8 says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have found the good, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is, this was his goal. To fight the good fight. To finish his race. To keep the faith. Now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The only possible way for you to rid yourself of the dread of death is to long for the appearing of Christ. If you long to see Him, if you long to be with God, it removes that fear and that dread. Instead, people long to have a comfortable retirement. People long, and I'm not saying retirement's evil. I'm just saying if that's your goal, it is evil to you. To long for the things of this world to long to be comfortable and, and find leisure and pleasure. Instead, long to be in the purposes of God for your life. Run your race, finish your race, and you too will be where Paul was, where he was between a rock and a hard place and he couldn't say which he wanted, to stay or go. To stay or go. This is very, this is very possible. You know that the martyrs of old, some of them um, were honored to be a martyr for Christ. You realize this, right? People were eager to be a martyr and glorified God as they breathed their last. Because to them, eternity was more real than their current pain. We have to learn that if we make the things of God a reality in our lives, and it's not just let's check a box on a Sunday. You know, I just got to check this box. And the way I'm going to check this box is I'm going to flip through. I'm going to just go to the internet, and then that way I can, flip, I can check that box. That's a dangerous thing, family. That's a dangerous thing. Just want to let you know. 
It has got to become a reality to each and every one of us. So remove the fear and the dread of death by living for the glory of God. Number five, allow God to unravel your affection for this life. Allow God to unravel your affections for the things of this world. The problem with the church today at large is simply that they just love the world too much. Yet the Bible says, if you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. Isn't that crazy? If you love the world, then the love of God is not in you. I think it's John. So we have to allow God to unravel our love for this life and our love for the things of this world. God can do that. But I want to encourage you in certain ways in which God does that. Very interesting though. Certain ways in which God allows you to fall out of love with this world is through hardships. It really is. It's through that unexpected crisis. <sighs> why me, God? Why me? I'll tell you why you. You love the world so much. And God's unraveling your love. He's calling you to fall out of love. He's calling you to stop romanticizing this life. See every hardship. See every crisis. And see all personal loss. Or even the dread of death as a means by which God causes you to fall out of love. With this world. Where God unravels your desires and affections from the things of this world. See it as God constructing in you a hope and a longing for the age to come. See that as God building within you a hope to see Him. And the moment you start doing that, you are purified in your life. The more that happens, the more you go like, I'm done with this world. I'm done with this world. And the more you become done with this world, the more excited you are to see He's appearing. And the more excited you are about seeing He's appearing, the more purified you become in this world. Nobody, please, don't drop a pin. I will hear it. <laughs> so family... Whether it be hardships, crisis, or loss, we have to learn as a, as a believer, we have to work hard at mourning. Work hard at mourning. You'll see throughout scriptures, David goes and he mourns for a season, and then he gets up. Work hard at mourning. Nobody's telling you to trivialize loss or death of a loved one, work hard, go and mourn. It's what you need to do. Otherwise, there's something wrong with you. Work hard at mourning. 
but then work hard at healing. How? By finishing your race. I've seen that too often. It's a strange thing to me. I don't understand it. As I'm standing here, I'm perplexed by it. That people grow older and less involved in the kingdom of God. I don't get that. Blows my mind. I see people facing death of a loved one and then suddenly they themselves lose direction when it comes to jumping in and say, God, use me. I don't understand that. Crisis, hardship, and loss makes me go, I'm focused. I don't even care about anything else right now. Now I need your will in my life, God. I need your purposes to be fulfilled in my life, God. I need that, that Paul principle where I too can come to the place of saying, I've run my race. <laughs> but for some reason, people go through hardships and they get out of the race instead of finishing it. Today is an encouragement for you. Get back in. Oh, life is hard. That's why you get back in. Well, I'm busy. That's why you get back in. Well, I'm really heartbroken. I'm depressed. That's why you get back in. I'm even starting to wonder if depression is a bad thing sometimes. Because it makes you grab at the things you know is true. It makes you grab on the thing. You know, now, God, <laughs> where's that rope, God? <laughs> right? It drives you towards God, not away from. If it drives people away from God, well, that brings up a lot of other questions. Do you follow what I'm saying? I'm like, hmm, okay. I, don't, I actually don't get that. When you see a world unraveling around you, that's when you start grabbing at God. That's not when you start letting go. So allow God to unravel your affections for this life. Your love for the things of this world. Number six, believers entrust their fear of death to the sovereignty of God. Oh, how I love this. Believers entrust their fear of death to the sovereignty of God. Are you all still alert? Can I quickly throw something at you? If you look at the will of God, something that we will delve in much deeper in the second year of Bible school. But if you look at the will of God, you can put it in three categories. The first category is called the sovereign will of God. The second category is called the moral will of God. And the third category is called the wisdom of God. So you have the sovereign will of God, the moral will of God, the wisdom of God. The sovereign will of God cannot be known until it happens. It cannot be changed, no matter how, how much somebody prays or don't pray. It doesn't matter if you obey or don't obey. The sovereign will of God cannot be overthrown. You can have, you can have your privates cut off. You ain't becoming the opposite sex. The sovereign will of God is when the doctor goes, It's a boy! Oh, praise God, God decided to give me a boy. The sovereign will of God is the fact that you were born into that family, into that nationality, at this time in history. 
in this nation where that color, those color eyes, you can't change them. You can buy those things you put in, but when they fall out, your eyes are still the same color, right? God's sovereign will is something that you cannot change. But there's more than just your hair color, your eye color, your gender, and your last name. That's part of God's sovereign will. But God's sovereign will cannot be known until it happens. Jesus is coming. That is God's sovereign will as to when it will happen. That it will happen and when it will happen. We don't know. We can't stop it. We can't make it come quicker. And we can't say when it happens. We know it's there when it happens. Because God acts sovereignly. Cannot be known. Cannot be disobeyed. Second category, God's, God's moral will, which is the Bible you hold in your hands. That is God's moral will. That will can be broken, can be known, can be broken, or can be submitted to. And your life experience is very much dependent upon that. Many people are on their third marriage. It's because the, because the moral will of God is being broken. Many people uh, are struggling in life for many reasons because the moral will of God has been broken. Obeyed or disobeyed? Your choice. Sovereign? Not your choice. God's choice. Moral? Your choice. Wisdom of God. Third category. No sin involved. No sin involved. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> When you are single and there are two girls sitting in front of you, one is born again and one is not, which is God's will for you? Yeah. Why do you know this? Why do you know not to be unequally yoked? Because the moral will of God told you so. So for you to pursue the unsaved girl would be a sin because you are breaking the moral will of God and you have to repent for that. Not by divorcing her. <laughs> if you married her now, the moral will of God is for you to stay married to her and learn to love her as she is, right? But what if there are two saved girls sitting next to each other? Both of them born again. Both of them love the Lord. <coughs> both of them serving God. The moral will of God is either. But the one is very respectful to her dad the other one very disrespectful to her dad. You see. The one is a Proverbs 31. And the other one doesn't know where Proverbs is in the Bible. <laughs> now you go, okay. But both of them are saved, truly saved. So the question is, the third category of the will of God is what? The wisdom of God. There's no sin involved, whichever one you choose to marry, but there's certainly a lot of wisdom involved in which one you choose to marry. Make sense? Because if the second one is always, if, if, if the second one is always overthrowing authority in her life where she's at in home, she's overthrowing her dad's authority, guess what? When you marry her, who's her authority? You. <laughs> she's well trained in overthrowing that. So, you know, good luck. Is it a sin? No, it's wisdom. To choose the better career. It's wisdom. To choose a career where you can be a father to your children and a wife and a husband to your wife. 
not the career that makes you unable to be there when they need you. You see, wisdom of God is not a sin issue. So we have these three categories, and I said all of that to say this. Number six, believers entrust their fear of death to the sovereignty of God, to God's sovereign will, not His moral will, and not His wisdom. To His sovereign will. Why? Because in Psalm 31, verse 13 and 15, it says, For I have many whisperings. I hear many whisperings. David's saying, Terror on every side, people are saying. They conspire against me, David said. And they plot to take my life, David said. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. I don't know my times. You do. In your sovereign will, you have established my times. Now, you might reach the end of your time with sugar diabetes and everything you shouldn't have. That was wisdom. But you could also arrive there much healthier. But your time is your time because they're in God's hands. David's life was in danger. And the Reformed Study Bible says this about that portion of scriptures, quote, David knew that God controls history in general and controlled his life in particular. This assurance comforted him in his distress. It's very clear he had enemies on all sides. They came to take his life. And here, King David, when you read the whole chapter, you'll see what a, what a pickle the guy was in. Poor David. Yet, he goes, God, my times are in your hands, not in my enemy's hands. My times are in your hands, not in, these, not in the hands of those diseases. I might die from a disease, but my time, when that happens, will be in your hands not in the hands of a doctor or the hands of a disease. Does it make sense? The span of your life has nothing to do with anything but the sovereign will of God. And I'm saying that because I want to close with this. Do not dare eliminate living in order to extend your life. It is absolutely futile. It is a wasting of the life that God gave you. Get out there and leave your mark in His kingdom. Because what is your life but a vapor? So the conclusion here is, it is God's will for each of us to arrive at the Apostle Paul's fearless view of death and his eagerness for eternity. It is God's will for you to live a life that declares if I go or if I stayed, I cannot tell which one. Because both are very real to me. But the one appeals in a greater way than the other. If you stay, it's to be productive. If, it's go if you go, it's because you want to be with Christ. Amen. So believers entrust their fear of death to the sovereignty of God. My days are in your hands, Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. We can turn to your word for your will, for your wisdom, for your standards, your promises. 
And Lord, you said that we, we do not have the freedom to be troubled over these things. You commanded us, do not be anxious about these things. So today, Father, we glorify you and we thank you, God. And even though we've come through this year and we have experienced what we've experienced, Lord, I thank you that you are God, you are on the throne. And every moment that is unwanted will drive us closer to you, will cause us to roll up our sleeves and jump in because your purposes is what rids us of the fear and the dread of death. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.